Hello, welcome to Emory Arts Creativity Conversations podcast. This is our fourth season, spring 2021, with these introductory interviews taking place virtually. This podcast takes Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversations, a live endowed speaker series on Emory's campus, and turns them into podcasts. I'm Maggie Becker, the host and producer of this podcast. I work for Emory Arts, and I'm an Emory alum of theater studies and creative writing. Today, I'm joined virtually by artist, Emory student, and editor for Emory Arts' new virtual zine, Conversations with Eggs, James Reich, to introduce the 2016 conversation between Amos P. Kennedy Jr. and Randall K. Burkett. The point of these introductions is to provide an exciting way to continue the conversation on creativity. James and I will chat about Kennedy and Burkett's thoughts, James's own work, and creating in general. James, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, hi, everyone. I'm James Reich. I'm a creative writing and philosophy major at Emory, and I'm a photographer who's from New York. I always love talking to students because they're just like, they're so complex, you know, you're not just a creative writer or just a philosophy major, but then you're also on your own doing the photography and, and all that. So that's so exciting. Yeah, definitely. I always feel like my list of introductions just gets longer and longer and longer as I have more to add. And as an artist, it's part of your identity. So you like don't want to leave any of it out. You know, you're like, yeah, well, I don't want to not sure. say I'm a photographer because I am. <laughs> so tell me why you picked this conversation. Yeah, so I was looking through all the different conversations and I was listening to a bunch and I found him to be very engaging and have some really interesting ideas in what he was saying. And what about it was engaging? Um, I found his presence engaging, and I also was very interested in the way he would started talking about creativity and um, how work came to him and how he discovered what he was passionate about. How did you discover what you were passionate about? It, it's been an ongoing process to always discover what I'm what I'm most interested in, and that's evolved constantly throughout the years as I've been learning more and more. You know, when you start with one thing, it just digs yourself into a rabbit hole and um, you get deeper and deeper and deeper into this little niche that you have and you find more and more and when you discover outside sources also you end up synthesizing it with what you are already interested in so your interests just constantly grow. I kind of find art and creativity almost like a gateway drug like you start somewhere you know like I started in theater as an actor. And then I was like, well, how do all these plays come about? Somebody writes them. So then I got into playwriting and then, but writing is writing. So then I got into writing and then it all just like takes this crazy journey. And I look back and I'm like, oh, wow. Like you're, we said earlier, your, your list, your resume list gets so long. What's your creative process? I know when, when I'm working, a kind of like a scene or a moment pops into my head. And then I think about it for a few days, I write it down. And then I start to build the world around that moment. What's your creative process? So my process has actually changed a lot recently. Um, originally, Amos P. Kennedy said something very, very interesting that I latched onto. He said, if I, if I plan, I don't do. And if I do, I don't plan. And that's really how I, for a long time, did my work, where I wouldn't plan at all. And I would have this idea that I thought of. Um, that I would just take with me for a very long time. And once that idea kind of, I couldn't stop it from nagging at me anymore. I would just go into it and I would spend hours at a time just working on this big one thing. Recently though, I found some sort of interest in planning where I'm really kind of working out what I'm 
what I'm doing beforehand because I've found that my projects have gotten larger in scope and kind of need to need need some sort of structure. I spent a lot of time in college. My playwriting professors would beg me to do an outline and I'd be like, no, I don't need an outline. I have this scene in my head and the rest of it will just happen. But then after I wrote that one inspired scene, everything died. It just died right there on the paper. And I've recently, I've started writing a novel and I've gotten very into the outline and it's really helped me like every day. I'm like, okay, this is what like needs to be written today. There can be more scenes that happen and come naturally, but like here, what, here's what has to happen for the plot to move forward. And, and I'm a big fan of planning now. I, 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 I like felt the need to email my college professors and like apologize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had exactly the same, uh, like, just 180 spin in the way I've been thinking about these things. And I think it must, some of it must come from just being more comfortable in your craft and, and maturity. Because I think, I felt like when I started, all of writing seemed so daunting. So to, to plan was insane because I was like, who, who would know where this would go next? But of course, like, as you get more comfortable being a writer, as, at least as I did, and then I was able to think, as you're saying, in a larger scope, I was like, well, I have to plan this out or else I, I, will, I will never get to the end because I'll forget what the end was supposed to be. <laughs> what are some big projects, these larger scope projects that you're working on right now? Can you share one um, with me? I'm, do I'm doing a pop-up gallery of prints in the Van Dyke process of a fashion photography shoot that I am currently doing. What is the Van Dyke process? So, so there are these um, different alternative photographic printing processes that were used before we've had these large format printers, you know, these big printers that print digitally. So what I'm doing is you expose your photograph in the sun, cyanotypes, if you heard of that, or um, a lot of other different processes. So you expose it and then you develop it and fix it. And with that process, it gets this brown hue to the color is this very brown color named after the Van Dyke brown color. And, you know, you can tone it gold and platinum and all of these other things. So what's the appeal of that process? I mean, when I was in high school ages ago, I took a couple of photography classes and we had to do everything on film. So I would spend like hours after school in the dark room, like working on stuff and developing the, the pictures. It's been a long time since I've done any of that. So I'm by no means a photography expert, but I did find the dark room process actually very soothing to kind of go in there and close the door. And when you turn the little flip the little light switch and let somebody know not to come in and open the door, you're like, this space is mine. And like, I'm here to work. And so I found it very meditative and, and relaxing. Is, is that why you got into this sort of process? Or is there some other appeal for you? Well, I definitely agree. It's always been like, working in the dark room is just it's really fun and relaxing. And you're by yourself or with a friend and you can just really focus it, it gives you it kind of forces you to focus on your work a lot but I'm not actually working in film so I'm shooting digitally and then I'm printing um, these digital negatives so you use that large format print to make negatives of any size you want as long as the printer can handle it so it really gets the craft back into photography so I'm having this kind of mix between I'm, I'm working a lot in Photoshop and digital 
imaging, and then also bringing back in that analog process that's missing. Was there anything else from the conversation that stuck out to you? Yeah, he he mentioned how um, art wasn't about the price tags, how it's about what we make as creative people. And, you know, that really stuck with me, you know. You know, you shouldn't be trying trying to stress about selling. You shouldn't be trying to stress about making millions of dollars with your art. And you should make. And that's all going to come in in time, as long as you're just making and doing what you're passionate about and what you really love. I think that's really interesting. I just had a very similar conversation with one of the other editors from Conversations with Eggs in their introductory interview. And they talked about how they really had to separate themselves from any of that because that's not why they had got into the art game. And that, when, you know, they had friends who were really trying to, like, monetize stuff. And they were like, that's great for them. But for me, it's like, this is my thing. And I just, I want to be able to do that. And I think that's really interesting. It's such a tightrope to walk because, like, you want to sell your work in a way so that you all you get to do or have to do is do your work. But then like you're saying, it becomes about this price tag and then this stress of like, oh, well, now I need to try and get into this gallery and sell it there and do this thing and do that there. And and it, it clouds the creative experience a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think artists should definitely remember, you know, like, why are you doing this? You're doing this because you love it, because you have something to say, because you have a reason to do it. The money will come. Don't worry about it, you know? Like... It'll, it'll get there. You're going to find your niche and, and everything, the, the people who want to buy your work. Well, James, thank you so much for chatting with me and sharing your creativity. To our listeners, please enjoy this creativity conversation. So welcome, everyone, to this creativity conversation. Uh, I'll be your temporary host. Uh, my name is Pella McDaniels. I'm the curator of African American Collections here in the Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Riverbrook Library. I want to introduce our two panelists today. Uh, Amos Kennedy is a printmaker, as you all are well aware of. He and Randall's relationship, and they'll talk about that, go back a few years um, before my time here at Emory. Uh, and of course, the, the conversation will be around his work, his uh, exploration of the, the creative process, uh, as well as you know what art the meaning of art. Randall Burkett, who is our uh, curator of research here in the Rose Library, most of you know him. Uh, he is uh, he's been my mentor, and I know a number of you, a number of you in the audience have had him as well as a mentor. But Randall's work is uh, is interesting as well in terms of his, as a collector, um, as someone who has is, has a full knowledge of black printing. Uh, black publishing. So this is a wonderful conversation between a maker and a collector. So without further ado, Randall. Thank you. Thank you. Well, welcome. Uh, second Pelham's welcome. Delighted to have you here this afternoon. Um, I've been here since 1997, and I think we met well, at least 10 or 12 years ago. One of the yes, yeah. 2000s. So it was, uh, it, and so we've had an ongoing uh, relationship. I. Um, I get wonderful packages from Amos. He sends materials addressed, Massa Randall, uh, collector of work by that humble Negro printer 
in Alabama. So uh, I may not be Massa, and we know he's not humble, but uh, you know, so these are, these are lies that he tells uh, about himself and others. And then uh, I think this was the invoice on the back of the box. I forgot for about six months, he said, wait, where's my money? I said, well, I didn't find the invoice. Uh, one of the first books that I acquired when I became uh, curator of African American collections was this book by W.E.B. Du Bois. I was interested in building a collection for Emory that would include African American authored and African American published books, and I was very interested in printing and print history. This is a fifth edition of W.E.B. Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk, and it had the reason that I wanted it was because of the inscription that Du Bois had put in the book. The, this book was from the retirement home of a printer's union in, in the far west. And uh, Du Bois wrote, May the printer, the link between thought and deed, bring into being a real brotherhood of men. That was in 1906 he wrote that. And I don't know if you think that's what the, the role of the printer is. Do you see yourself as bringing into being the brotherhood of men and perhaps women? Uh -huh. Or what do you, what are you about? Uh, well, to begin with, I don't, I have, I keep lowering my standards. That makes my life so much easier. And now I just consider myself someone who makes stuff. You know, I'm not even a printer, I just make stuff. And I enjoy making stuff. But the role of the printer in Western civilization has always been extremely important. It is that, that within the print shop, that is the place where information is kept and disseminated. And this is why the Western civilization has flourished. Uh, I live in a time now when people marvel at the microcomputer and all the developments in what we call the digital world. But what we fail to remember sometimes is that all that is based upon printing, lead type, pressure, paper. That this is what made us what we are. And that for more than 500 years, we have honed this object called a book to meet our biological, the way that we function as humans. That's why it's so comfortable to us now. It has been with us, it has grown, it has evolved, it has shaped us and we have shaped it over the 500 years. So the printer is the keeper of civilization in one respect, because this is where you will find that universities flourished after printing became available. You will find that the great universities of Europe really started after Gutenberg lost money at printing. Because that's one thing printing is good at, you know, having someone lose money at it. And so uh, it is extremely important to the Western civilization and allows for the advancement of it. Do you remember the first book that you ever acquired for yourself as a, as a young person? When, uh, when did books begin to fascinate you? Books fascinated me for a long time. I, there's an image of me, and I, sometimes I display it. And I think it's the book is, I think it's called The Jolly Pirates or The, or the uh, Merry Pirates. And it was a little children's book. And someone took an image of me standing in front of my parents' door. And I'm half naked and the book is covering me. 
And after I got into graduate school, I said I was going to do a performance piece if I could ever find that book. <laughs> but I haven't been able to find a copy of it. But I just thought it'd be cute to be half naked with a book in front of you, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but that was the first book. But then when I, I, I distinctly remember that, uh, the book, I don't know if, how much that plays into it, but I have always been in love with libraries. Mm -hmm. you know, libraries have always fascinated me since I was seven years old. I was fortunate my father was a professor, so we lived on the campus of Princess Anne in Princess Anne, Maryland, at the University of the College there. So the library was within walking distance of the house. And so I could uh, visit the library. Mm -hmm. It was just something. And then through elementary school and high school, I worked in the, uh, in the high school library. Mm -hmm. And so the library has always been uh, like the really cool place to hang out at for me. We love people who love libraries. <laughs> what inspired you to, to do the, the work that you're doing now? How did you, how did you find yourself as a printer? Uh, it was a long journey. It was a 20-year journey where I uh, tr attempted to live the classic uh, American middle-class life. And I found that uh, I was way too successful at it. So I ventured off into something else. But uh, it was about 1988, 1989. I took my sons to Williamsburg, and I saw the printing press there. And that was it. It was over. And one of the things that happened to me, and this shows you how the world operates. I, uh, I met all these old printers. I was talking to one, and I said I was going to teach my sons how to print. He said, well, why don't you come over to my house? Because I have a little job stick, and a job stick is what you use for type. So when you're setting type, I have a little job stick that's perfect for kids. And so I went over to his house, and he showed me his shop, and it was beautiful, because he had been collecting since he was a teenager. And he gave me the job stick, and on the way out the house, he asked me, would you like to have my collection? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah. And, and I was like totally, I mean, I met him like three times maybe. And he was willing to give me this huge collection of uh, type. And it was like, oh, you know, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Because no one else had ever given me anything but trouble. You know? <laughs> so I was like delighted that someone wanted to give me something, you know, that I really liked. And so that happened. And then a couple of weeks later, a friend of mine purchased a press, a Vandercook, which was extremely expensive. She spent $500 on it. And, uh, and I couldn't afford one. But the next week after she purchased it, there was a notice on the board, free printing press. And it was the same model that she got. And so I moved it until I got my printing press. And then I was like, hey. And as I may have mentioned to you, what I discovered, um, when I went back to Chicago, I took a printing course, but everybody in the printing course was English majors. So they knew, you know, like they would sit around and talk about poets and stuff, you know. And I was a math major, you know. And then one day I said, wait a minute, I know poets. I know Langston Hughes. I know Georgia Douglas. I know, you know, I know black poets. I don't know these white poets, but I know my poets. And then I started looking, and I saw that they were not in fine print books. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I'll print them. Yeah. And so I started printing. And actually, my first venture was uh, one of the things was to preserve the words of the Negro race. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. in print, mm -hmm. in fine print, so to speak, because it was missing. And if you go to special collections anywhere, and you say, well, I'd like to see your books about whatever you want to call it, African Americans, you know, your fine print books by African Americans, or your fine print books about the African American culture, they may pull out a book or two books, but they won't come with huge amounts. And when you ask them why, they'd be like, oh, because no one's doing it. And they, if you ask them, is that right? They say, yeah. So I said, well, you know, why not? Why should we exclude ourselves from the part of the American civilization? If we want to be integrated into it, we should be integrated mm -hmm. into it, too. Were you a reader as, as a youth? Did you read a lot? Uh, I read a lot. I read a, I read a considerable amount. But my reading started changing uh, after college. It became more technical as far as literary. Mm -hmm. But through high school and uh, college, I did more literary reading. And now I, uh, I just like, I'm really into graphic design books because mm -hmm. they have big, pretty pictures. <laughs> and so I like to look at the pictures now. Yeah, I like books with big, pretty pictures too. Yeah, but naked women. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I don't have any of those. But I. Oh yeah. Graphic, graphic arts. <laughs> you originally were set up in Gordo, Alabama. Is that right? Is that where your first? Uh, no, my printing? first printing press was in Oak Park, Illinois. Okay. Okay. This is really interesting because I've had my first printing press was the Idiot Press, the private press of Amos Ball Kennedy Jr. Uh huh. And then I moved from that to uh, Kennedy and Sons Fine Printers because it had such a noble and, you know, ah, Kennedy and Sons. And people say, is your, is your father a printer? I said, no, but it doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, I went to Jubilee Press because, again, going back to Jubilee being such an important word in the Negro culture. And then I changed it to Juba with an A as opposed to an E because mm -hmm. of vernacular sounding. And then I finally got down to... Uh, Gordo. No, I went to um, York, Alabama. That's right. And I left, I left, I, I was in academia for three and a half years, and that was quite an adventure for the university I was at. You know? <laughs> and I think they, and so they finally recovered. That was more than almost 20 years ago, and they finally recovered from it. Uh, Indiana University. Indiana, Indiana. And uh, I think we have a copy of the one of your resumes for your first year report on your work in the back. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you I'm, know, not yeah. Sure, I'm not sure how w well that was received by the university or by your colleagues. In uh, the department. Well, what you don't have is a copy of, the, of my last one what, that I sent to the associate dean of faculty where I said, if you want to know what I'm doing, get out of your office and come see me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because, you know, like I. I I'm not supposed to manage myself. You're getting paid a quarter of a million dollars to manage me, you know. But uh, the first place I went to was York, Alabama, and it, had, it was a population of about 1,500. Then I went to Akron, Alabama. That had a population of 500. Then I went to Gordo, and Gordo had a population of 1,800. So you can see I moved to these big metropolitan areas in Alabama. But it was fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And did you sell a lot of books locally? I didn't sell any books. What I realized <laughs> is that I was going to starve to death selling books. Uh -huh. So I made the switch to posters. Mm -hmm. And uh, the switch to posters was 
first to do uh, event posters because I thought I could make a living at that. But I wasn't doing too well at that. But people were buying posters for events sometimes, the overruns, because the date was special. Mm -hmm. You know, like my son was born on it or, you know, we got, we, were, we got engaged on that date. And so I slowly made the switch to what I call doing oversized greeting cards. And uh, I've been doing that. And that's the way that I actually make a lot of my living. But after I made the switch, I realized that what has happened is that I have uh, taken an approach of democratization of print. Because these posters are affordable mm -hmm. for the common person. While my books run you know, $1,000, $2,000. And while there are a lot of people that can spend that kind of money, they're normally not buying books. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you so you know? Got, if you got that much money, you don't need to buy books. <laughs> right, you know? You're like, I don't need no books. I got money. <laughs> you know? So, uh, but the other thing is that I realized that those books, and, and you know, not to be negative, but what happens is that they end up in collections right. where they are preserved under pristine and ideal conditions, and they're used by scholars and by other people. But my posters end up, you know, right. tacked on somebody's right. wall, right. and it's amazing when you when I go to craft fairs and everything to see how people take to them. It's like, oh, this is. I, at first, I wouldn't sign them because it's just a poster, but people are like, would you sign them? And I said, well, I should respect them, mm -hmm. and so I started signing them. Uh, but it took about three years before I would sign them because I was just who signs a poster, you know? But you know, they thought, you know, they thought they treasured them. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it is a way, as a, I tell people I'm the introductory drug to buying art. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and this you know, a, you laugh, but a, this uh, is the, today, yeah. This is the marijuana of, uh, yeah, this know, is the yeah, marijuana of art, you, you, know, you know, but, uh, you know, people will end up spending $150 on posters where they wouldn't spend $150 on one print. But you know, it's like, oh, I should get one for my brother-in-law. I should get this one for my sister. And you know, oh wait, like Christmas is coming. I just buy all my Christmas presents right now and just say, wait. You know, and then end up, you know, it's like, I, yeah, I was, I was at Stanford, and one woman bought four hundred dollars worth of ten-dollar posters. Did you have any left by the uh, time she was yeah, done? Yeah, oh yeah, I had, yeah. <laughs> but I'm like, okay, you know, and it's it's really nice to be able to put things into the hands of of people, of, of the masses. Because so many times when people interact with or hear about art, it's the $10 million Van Gogh that was just sold, or somebody just bought a $2 million piece of sculpture. And art isn't about that. Art is about us. It's about what we make because we are creative thing people. And so I think that, you know, and people look and say, well, you can do it. You can make stuff. You make it, you know, and people will buy it. If you, if you make enough stuff, someone will buy it if you sell it cheap enough. Can you talk a little about the process, especially, I love that book, the Masks book ah. that's in the back. T talk about the process of creating that. Well, the uh, Masks book, like uh, well, I've always been interested in uh, overprinting and overlayering. Because normally when you go into fine print, there's just one layer of print. Mm -hmm. Well, that's text. And then the paper. But I've always liked to build up. And so the mass book, May have been that may be the first book I've ever done layered, like hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And I had made a bunch of Abaca paper years before, and it was just sitting around. And 
I've so you, always, you say you made the paper. Yes, I used I to just, make paper. I don't want to underscore that. So. Right, I used to make paper. And I've always loved Paul Lawrence Dunbar's uh, uh, poem, We Wear the Mask. And I had been looking at African masks mm -hmm. and just the beauty of them. Mm -hmm. And so I decided that I would just start to make this book. And I went and I got a lot of wood type that spelled mask. And I just put it on the press bed and I just started printing. There is no rhyme or reason to what I do. Uh, if I plan it, I don't do it. If I do it, I don't plan it. And that is the way I work. And so that was just basically mm -hmm. printing every day. Mm -hmm. And uh, if, you, if you have something, this is how you know that you've gone too far. If you are engaged in a task, and you look up, and four and five hours have passed, and you don't even recognize it, you know you've gone too far and you shouldn't turn around, you should just keep going. <laughs> you know, Because I believe sincerely that, that you reach this moment of, of, of creativity, of doing, that uh, time is almost suspended. And I think that we all want to have that. We all want to be in that zone, so to speak. And you can be in that zone, you don't have to be. I dislike the term artist, that's why I call myself a stuff maker. You don't have to be what we call an artist. You just have to make things. You have to make what you love or do what you love. And if you're doing that, then you will reach that point. And it is just, uh, you know, it's just perfect. It's just calm. I remember once I, used, I, I took calligraphy for a long time. I was in this one class, and there were about 20 people. And there was this moment when all you could hear was the, was the scratching of the nibs on the paper. That was it. Just this, it was just perfect. Your work, a lot of your work is very political. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? I, I oh, when I was a young man, uh -huh. that was a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I was like 23, I think. And uh, I went to this reading of, of a play. And it was a black theater. Mm -hmm. And that would have made it like 73 really in the black power, black right. arts movement. And I remember the, uh, the playwright saying, everything you do is political. When you shit, it's political. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of kept that as a mantra, mm -hmm. that everything I do is political. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you say, well, that's a funny thing, Amos. Yes, but it's also a political thing, because what I'm trying to do is shape the world. And one of the things I like is happiness. I'm all about happiness. Right now, that's my big kick. You know. Everybody should be happy. Forget everything else. Just be happy. And so, you know, and so I say that although my posters may not appear to be political, the big ones, mm -hmm. but if you were to gather them all together and look, you'd see that there's a political statement. Then there are things that I do that I say are just more overt, you know, mm -hmm. just like in-your-face political. Right. And that's what it's about. It's about... I don't want you to misunderstand this. I don't want you to take it the wrong way. Uh, this is the message that I have. Mm -hmm. And I do a lot of that. I continue to do a lot of that. Uh, I do it more for exhibitions or more for myself because I have to have that outlet. Mm -hmm. And sometimes things really kind of upset me. Uh, one of the, because again, when I started printing, you know, although I was printing the poems of Langston Hughes and you know, was that political? Yes, because they were excluded. 
but it was also the act of printing. But mm -hmm. uh, you know, I knew it was a political act. You know, it's hard to be black in America and not be political. It's hard to be black in America and not be confrontational because people are confrontational with you mm -hmm. all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. So how do you not be? Just your presence is like, you got issues with my presence. And I'm like, ah, you know, great. Since you got issues, I might as well let you have some more issues. You know, no need me trying to pee. You mad at me, so I might as well make you madder. You know, but um, yeah. For example, the first really political thing I did was, and I think you may have a copy of it. It was the uh, murdered children in Chicago. Yes, I yeah. thought about taping some of those to the floor and making people, uh, yeah, people walk, walk over, over yes. them, but yeah. I. Yeah, that I mean that's the most appropriate because people won't walk over it because it's art. Well, these, yeah. are, these are cards that give the, the, the name and the date of children who were murdered in Chicago in a particular year. Right. How many were there, 60, 70? Uh, well, I did it for three years. It started at 62, and it ended up to about 64. But, and also, these were children under the age of 15 because we had been so numbed to the fact of a 16-year-old or 17-year-old getting shot in drug gang-related issues. Now that, you know, no big deal. But when you see that, you know, a three-year-old is strangled to death or beaten to death, you know, then it becomes like, what is this? And so I was aware of this because of an article in the Tribune, the Chicago Tribune. And also my sons were, these were contemporaries of my children. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, like one boy was shot because he was walking into his door. And little, you know, a lot of people don't know this. Well, a bullet will continue until it hits something or it runs out of energy. And this bullet was shot like three blocks away and it still had enough energy to kill this little boy as he walked into the door. Mm -hmm. You know, victim, you know. And so I did that because one of the things is that the Tribune reported it and nothing happened. You know, it was an article great. You know, and the art community did not respond at all. But these are poor black and brown children, primarily. And I said, if 100 musicians had been killed, you know, there would be you know, concerts and also, you know, if 100 poets were killed. You know, but what is it that we can just say that these children are disposable because they're poor or because they're poor and black? Mm -hmm. it is, I mean, the atrocities that we do to children that go unreported, even now children are being murdered but you don't hear about it. You know, the, I would venture to say that this year in Atlanta, 12 to 20 children will be murdered under the age of, uh, of 15. Mm -hmm. But there's no outcry. You know, because these are children. Now, and I, I, I dubbed our name the project Children Don't Count because their murders weren't counted. And so, you know, this, I mean, this kind of thing kind of upset me. Mm -hmm. And so I, I rant and rave about it. Right now, my big kick is that we live in a nation where slavery is constitutionally permitted. Correct? That's right, right? We fought a civil war to end slavery, but slavery is constitutionally mandated. Every state has the right to enslave people. Now, those people are what we call convicts or criminals. But it doesn't take much to go from having a traffic ticket to becoming a felon. 
And you can say, well, it won't happen to me. Cancer won't happen to you either. You know? It can ha if it can happen, it can happen to you. The only way it can't happen to you is that it can't happen to anyone. And I think this is one of the things that we've lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd like to open with this is we'd like to make this a conversation with all of you. So are there questions or comments from the audience? Are you still printing fine press books? No, I'm not. And since you asked the question, you get a free poster. That's what I always do. Because normally I talk to students and they don't want to ask questions. You know, but I thought this is like, you know, how many students are here? Oh man, you know. How many students are at Emory? Yeah. <laughs> no, how many students are at Emory? Like uh, about like ten? So I got half of the I got half of the student population here today. Oh man, I am popular. You know? Uh yeah, because normally I talk to students and they don't want to ask questions. Then you know, like, oh, and then everybody wants to ask questions. Like, too late. First one gets it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, no, I I, I still uh, no I don't do fine books. But I'm yeah, thinking about getting back to it. Oh. Yeah. Do you use uh, lead type or wood type or both? I use whatever I got, but you and I have everything, yeah. Okay. I don't do polymers. Yes, that's what I wanted. I don't do polymers. <laughs> Polymer is a plastic form of printing, and it's, uh, it allows you to go from computer to uh, letterpress printing very easily these days. But I don't do it because, you know, I tried it, I did it, and I didn't like it. So I moved on from that. I've been there, done that, as the old saying goes. Oh, you got another question. Hey, right here. Just keep, you know, it could, we could, it could be a comment, you know. Yeah, hey. We have a little dialogue we here. We ask for questions if nobody wants, you know, feel free. We'll just talk. Yeah, you know. <laughs> that, uh, and they'll just have to sit there and say, I wish I had a chance. So do you still print on a Vandercook, or do you have uh, any other kind of presses I that print, you use? Uh, I print on a Vandercook. A Vandercook is a type of uh, letter press. It's a flatbed cylinder press. And it's really not a printing press. It's a proofing press. But I won't bore you with the finer details. But I can, if you wish, <laughs> you know. And I also have a Heidelberg printing machine because Germans don't call them presses. You know, they're a little strange. Yeah. So I, I also print a lot on those two. And then I have some big presses. I have a press that will print uh, 29 by 40 sheet of paper, what and I print those things. Yeah, I like to print big. What things. kind of press is that? It is. I well, I have one. I have one that's called a fag. I actually have two fags in my shop. <laughs> no, two fag presses, and uh, and so that's the. And then I have. I don't know. I bought this press in Italy. That's like humongous. It's eight feet long. It weighs about two and a half tons, and I print on that too. I you know I just uh, printing presses are like you know like something. Printing presses to me are what black printed material is to Randall. You can't get enough of it. You know? <laughs> it's just that my stuff weighs more. <laughs> There's one, someone, oh. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, yes. Oh, no, you can go out and ask the question. I was going to ask you to talk about Detroit Printing Press and what, what that's all about. Well, that's very good that you were going to ask that question. Next. <laughs> okay. Uh, what she talked about, the Detroit Printing uh, Plant is no longer. What I have now is something called uh, the printing plant. And I changed it because I saw this. There was this YouTube 
comedy skit about Detroit and it just listed everything that was named Detroit and went on for like five minutes. Detroit, this Detroit, there's Detroit Nipple Company. <laughs> you know, so I just, enough Detroit, so I just call it the printing plant. The reason I call it the printing plant is because a plant is actually a place of spirituality. You know, when you look the word up in the dictionary. You know what a dictionary is? <laughs> Anybody here know what a dictionary yeah, is? Okay. I've used uh, one. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but that is, uh, that is making progress slowly as my life normally goes. And hopefully by the end of this year, I should have a building and I should be moved into it. And then all hell is going to break loose because then we can print as much as we want to. Yes, right there. I have a daughter who's graduating from UGA in May with a printmaking degree. Yes. Um, what would your advice be to her <laughs> as she looks for, for a would, job? Yeah. My advice for her uh, is, this is what I tell students. Who, I say, if you're going to go to graduate school, you find a school that you really like, or a professor you really like, and you go there for the first semester, the first year, and you take as many courses as you can under that person. And then the second year, when you get your, your loan check, you go and you buy yourself a printing press and never go back again. <laughs> <laughs> because really, you know, and not to diminish universities or anything, but what she has to do is she just has to go and make stuff again and again and again. You make stuff over and over again. The wonderful thing about working with your hands is that you have muscle memory and so certain things become almost automatic to do because you've done it so many times over. So it will free your mind to think or to consider what you're doing. So I am an advocate that theory comes from practice. Practice doesn't come from theory. So the more you do it, the more you think about it, the more you become involved in it. You know, you come up with these theories. One of the things is that, uh, is that uh, you know, art school teaches you art speak. And you know, like, but what you want to do is you want to make stuff. And that, you know, my, my advice to you to give her is say, go make stuff. And, and make stuff that her friends can make. What I tell students when I talk to them at the university, you have to make stuff that competes with people you know. You take away your favorite aunt, your grandparents, and your favorite uncle. Who's going to buy that? And, okay, your friends. Yeah. So what are you competing with? Normally a six-pack of beer on Friday night. So that's what you got to look at. <clears throat> so you say, this is who I know. This is how much I can spend on my work. So why am I going to price it for $300? I don't know anybody that can buy it for $300. But I know a lot of people who can buy it for $5 or for $10. So that's what I'm going to price it for. I would also encourage her, because she's graduating in May, Oh, that's coming up soon. Tell her to do her senior show in the business school. I don't think she has that option. Well, yeah, yeah, she has that option. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. She just tells them, I'm going to do it in the business school. And if they don't like it, you know, say, well, it's still going to be in the business school. You know? Uh, well, if you, uh, you know, I'm going to do one in the business school, and, I, uh, and I'll put up something over here. But I'm going to the business school. And when you say, why are you going to the business school? Because the business school ain't coming over here. Okay? And some of those people in the business school one day may be in a position where they say, I have to buy artwork for Regions Bank. <laughs> you know, I have a budget of, you know, $2 million to buy the artwork for our new 
our new office building. And, oh, I remember so-and-so from college. Let me call her up and see if she can, if what she can do for me. Smart yes. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you. Question way in the back. Yes. So I had the pleasure of chatting with you a little bit before it's, we started, and you mentioned to me that uh, creativity was a process of lying to yourself. And I thought that was a really, really great notion, and I wondered if you could share that with us a little bit more and maybe tell us what's the next lie on your horizon. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I thought about that on the way down, you know, like, because I said, oh, creativity, where have we got? I didn't have my dictionary. I, I normally have, I, I actually own a set of Oxford English dictionaries, but it's packed away. So that eliminates a lot of problems with me because I go look up words before I talk about it. But yeah, when I, what, I, what I meant is that uh, you tell yourself, to be creative, you have to tell yourself a lie because it doesn't exist. You know? So you're making a new world. And you know, that's kind of what lying is. Storytelling. You know, storytelling, yeah. And so you, know, so you start there. You say, I'm going to do this. And then you end up doing it. You end up making it. You know? So you're going against what, what we perceive as reality in my, in my what, I, what I'm trying to work through. Because I, I do like this idea that to be creative, you have to lie to yourself in order to get yourself motivated, in order to get over the obstacles that you perceive in the reality that you exist, to make the reality you want. Because I think that that is one of the things that a lot of people don't realize you make the reality you want. You shape it. You make the world. I tell students, you make the environment for yourself to be creative. And that is the thing that you want to do first and foremost. So yeah, I'm working on that whole thing. You know, I'm just kind of throwing stuff out there and seeing what sticks. <laughs> Question the two up here in the front. Yeah, and one in the middle. So, you, when you were talking about the printing plant, yes. when you get moved in, you said, then we're going to town. Yes. <clears throat> How many of you are there? Oh, well, that depends. Some days there's five of me, and some days there's six. You've got to be careful when the rest of them gang up on you. But when I say when we go to town, uh, one of the problems, and this is what you know, your daughter will face, is that once you leave the university setting, you do not have access to the equipment, especially in printmaking, to printmaking. And so one of the things I would like to do is have a facility so you know, if, if a person coming out of university had a project that they didn't complete or they wanted to complete, they would have access to the tools at the, at the uh, printing plant so they could go on and complete that project. Because I sincerely believe that it is the duty of the elders to help the young. And despite the fact that I'm in absolute denial, I'm old. <laughs> you know, and so it's my, just like that printer gave me so much, I think that what he gave me more so was the legacy of printing and the legacy of helping someone embrace it and let it become a part of their life. And so that's one of my responsibilities. Tell us a little bit about your, the, uh, your interest in paper for printing, the range of it from handmade to the whole spectrum that you may draw upon. Right. Well, I, my, my spectrum has narrowed to chipboard. I use a 21-point chipboard 
and I use that all the time right now for my posters. And one of the reasons I do that is because the posters were traditionally put outside, so they needed something heavier to work with. But in my earlier days of printing, I loved to make abaca paper. And I have a friend who had a paper mill, and so I would go up there on Sundays and make paper for like 10 hours. And just it was just the thrill of, you know. And then I made paper out of tobacco. I made it out of other indigenous plants, you know, the boiling of it, the cooking of it. It was just, you know, again, it's one of those things that sometimes you find something that just makes you happy and it's fun. It can be, it can be perceived as hard work. It can be physically tiring. But still, it's just so good to do it. I mean, there is something. If you never made paper, you should go make paper because there's something about the water, the mold and deco, the shaking of it. It is just the, once you get into the rhythm, it just becomes the sweetness. And you just like, and you pooch it, and you get the, you know, you get the next sheet, and then you just, it's just, you know, it, it, to, to make things, to do things with your hands, I think that is like the ultimate. I remember once seeing a uh, scene where a master Japanese woodworker had like a, 14 foot long plank and he had this plane and he went down the plane at the same rate and he just had this curl that was 14 inches long all the same uh -huh. thickness you know it was like yeah. that was like magic mm -hmm. you know that was like that's the ultimate and i think everyone wants to get to that point in something that they're doing do you move into binding i do bind i bind uh i bind books i like to bind blank books and uh, I have a project that I've been working on. It's called 100 Books. And so once I've bound, a no, it's 1,000 books. Once I bind 1,000 books, I'm going to put them all in a big room and try to sell them all. But I just like, uh, again, when you start to bind and you, you, know, you have the signature. I mean, the thing about binding, okay, book binding, all it is is taking a pile of paper, transforming it into another pile of paper. So you can take that pile of paper, transform it into another pile of paper. And so it's just like this wonderful process. You fold up a bunch of paper one time, and then once you got all of it folded up, you go and you fold it a second time. And then you, know, you punch the holes in it, and then you, you, know, you sew it. And sewing is just doing this over and over again. And people say, how can you do that, all that? I say, well, how can you watch, how can you watch a, how can you watch a football game which is only 60 minutes long that takes four hours. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what? Four 15-minute quarters and 10-minute halftime or something? It takes four hours. And they say, well, it's easy. They say, that's how I can do it. It's easy. <laughs> I'm curious. Uh, you. You talked about living uh, in Gordo and these other small towns in Alabama, and I've also talked about various other places you've lived, and then I was also struck by you just mentioning working with indigenous plants um, and tobacco in making paper. So I'm wondering if there's ways in which your, your stuff making relates to the places that you live or how your experience of living in the different places where you've lived affects your work. Uh, no, the stuff making doesn't. Uh, all the paper I did before I moved to Alabama. Okay. And, and so since I've been in Alabama, it's all been about printing. 
and in, in Detroit. Training. Since and you've been in Detroit. No, since, no, since, well, no, since I've been, yeah. well, when, when I was in Alabama and since I've been in Detroit, it's all been about, uh, you know, the posters and this whole democratization of art. And as I may have mentioned earlier, the whole thing is that in Alabama, I learned this vernacular, what I call it vernacular graphic design, which I think works very well for people who have not been introduced to the nuances of the Bauhaus and asymmetrical <laughs> and all the rest of that stuff. And so, yeah, and so that's basically it, yeah. Well, then I, I guess my question is, could you say a little more about what what the word vernacular means to you or what vernacular design means to you and what you see as some of the, the roots of that aesthetic? Uh, the vernacular design, uh, it has changed. And it has changed since about 1999. And it changed because of something called word. <laughs> Prior to word, vernacular for me, it was the handwritten sign on on the kind of poster board you get from the dollar store. However, I have seen people do handwritten signs on the inside of a container, like a cereal box. So it's all, this, it's all about the handwritten and the way that the words are positioned on the handwritten. With, with the advent of word, you find that it's now all centered it's normally Times Roman or some sans serif, and they have gone from just white paper to the fluorescent papers. So that that evolution has taken place, you know, since like yeah, definitely since 2000. Because I mean, you go up and down the streets now, how many handwritten, you know, like garage sale, you know, all that has gone by the way, and it's now all computer generated. Well, thank you for our vote yes. uh, gift, and I wanted to it's t have you talk a little bit about the inspiration for this. Yeah. And well, the inspiration uh, is that uh, everyone, I sincerely believe that this civilization has, has and continues to slowly turn citizens into consumers, <laughs> and that we need to take back our citizenship. And one way we can take back our citizenship is through voting. However, everyone has complaints about the political system and the people who govern it. But there is a remedy for that. Because as the adage goes, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Then run for office. You know, there is no rule, there is no law that says a librarian can't be mayor. You know, or an artist, a painter can't be mm -hmm. mayor. As a matter of fact, we have kind of delegated that to people who call themselves lawyers who can't spell. You know, but they can we use think, spell check, but they uh, can't. Yeah, spell. right. You know, so what? You know, so you should vote, but you should also participate in the actual political. I mean, how many of you have attended a council meeting? You know, you do these things. You become active in the community. Voting is the start but it's not the stop. So take, you know, take a little more, you know, take a little more uh, action to the, because it doesn't take much to change the system. You know, I mean, uh, you, you show up, if five of you show up at a council meeting every time, they, they're gonna start to get worried. You know, you know if, you, if you ask the question about, you know, are you gonna increase, you know, libraries need to have, you know, 
a tax increase. When are you going to do it? You know, they're going to get tired. They're going to say something's going on. that we Because they have just consumed, and when I say they, you know who, who I mean, they, me and my friends, uh, just assume that we can keep you at bay with your 140-channel cable and, you know, and looking at your iPhone all day or whatever phone you have, and that's cool, you know. But, you know, just show up. I mean, showing up sometimes scares the heck out of politicians. And if you show up and take notes, then they, oh, really, yeah. <laughs> get, then they really get nervous. <laughs> because and the other thing is, is it, when I was growing up, we had radio and, you know, and the radio had news twice an hour. It was local news. So you knew when council meetings were. You knew what kind of meeting was going on in your town because there wasn't, you know, we didn't know what the Kardashians were doing, but we knew that, <laughs> you know? Because that was what they thought they, we needed to know, that there was a council meeting or the school board was meeting t tonight. But you don't have that because you don't own the radio stations anymore. So you don't have local news, so you don't know what's going on locally. And the television, you know, they'll tell you when somebody is shot, but they won't tell you what the council voted on or why they voted on that. They won't tell you what's on the agenda for the next council meeting. So you can say, whoa, they're going to talk about dog control? I better get there. You know, they're going to talk about having you know, having, being able to raise chickens in Atlanta, I better get there. I want to follow up with a tangent that's a little bit off track, but um, my question is about imagery that might be considered controversial, and I want you to tell us about your friend with the Mardi Gras beads. Oh, yeah. Oh. Imagery that might be controversial. Is, did I do something? Uh, is there something on there? Huh? Why the Mardi Gras? Well, they went to the Mardi Gras without me, and that's what they got. <laughs> you know, I mean, they, they, they just took off. This is when I was in Alabama. They went down there and acted stupid. I had to go get them out of jail. You know, no, this is this is Buck. No, this is Sean, and this is Buck, and these are my uh, lawn jockeys. And I, Buck, I mean Sean, when I found him, he was in uh, Bloomington, Indiana, with a chain around his leg on the on front of the uh, antique store. And so I just kind of liberated him. <laughs> and Shine, I got an auction. I bid it up $50 for Shine. And so I, I kind of liberated And so they kind of stayed with me. And the first time I came to Emory, I had a little red wagon that's back there. And I parked somewhere where I wasn't supposed to park. And I walked across campus with it. <laughs> and, and, you know, and people were just like, and I was like, I thought I had my fly open or something. You know, <laughs> and so, uh, and then I stopped, and uh, somewhere around there here, there's a statue of Robert Woodward, and I took a picture of Shine, of Shine with him, you know, and you know, and they they seem to get along really well, and so uh, I buck brother, and now Shine wants to have his picture taken with him, so I said, okay, I'll take both of you down there, you know, but I don't want any stupidity out of you, and so they've been well behaved, but uh, I know what you're saying. It's this way. The imagery there existed. Why is it that we want to deny it? I celebrate. You got an issue with it, then what you need to do is find a time machine, go back 100 years, and have them stop it. But don't tell, you know, because I get people who say, 
Well, don't, but don't tell me I can't use it, because it is politically correct, because it's history. We cannot whitewash our history. We cannot change, you know, if, if we did have this great open society, then that wouldn't be a question. That'd be like, yeah, that's what happens. You know, I think it's kind of funny that you do it. I, I mean, I get a kick out of it. What, what I didn't bring, because I can't find it, I actually have a spittoon that says, in good standing with the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, it's like really cool, you know? How many black people you know have that, you know? <laughs> How many black people you know had it and lost it? <laughs> no, it's, it's packed away. Oh, it's packed. Yeah, yeah it's, it's packed, packed away. All right, all right. Yeah, so, you know, and I collect Aunt Jemima. I collect any black, because it's also, it's a, from a, you know, it is, how were black people depicted? I mean, that is a legit, how were we depicted in the 1800s? So this is the way we were depicted by, you know, by the general population. And we need to see this. I think Ferris State in Michigan has the largest Jim Crow collection in the world. And when you go there, you suddenly have a different attitude about that. If you see one or two, you kind of get, but wait a minute, there is, there's a history, there's a story. We need to know the story. So you have some um, works that um, I guess are artist books. They're actually considered artist books, but they're, they're churches. Yes. Correct. And um, burn churches. So I'd like you to tell us both why we should think of them as books, um, or do you think of them as books, and also what the story is about the burn churches. That well, I think of them as altered books, uh -huh. because I actually burnt uh, Bibles. So the Bible has actually been burnt. And what happened, it was in the mid-90s, uh, in the mid-90s, somewhere around 60-plus churches in the United States were burnt, black churches. And uh, a couple of months later, the Justice Department came out with this report that said that there was no evidence of any racial motivation behind it. And, you know, that was just like one of those triggers in my life. Because I said, if... 50 synagogues were burnt. There is no way they would come out, oh no, there's nothing anti-Semitic about that. They would say that, you know, for that to happen is an anti-Semitic act in itself, even if, it, you know, even if it was the lightning that struck them all, <laughs> you know? Jehovah did it. Right, uh-huh, but Jehovah got issues, yeah. you know? And I'm like, you are discounting the fact that all these churches were burned, all these people were terrorized, and there's no racism. And so that's when I said, I'm going to burn these Bibles, and I'm going to make these churches to commemorate that. Because there is nothing out there to say, this actually happened. You know, atrocities happen in this country, and we gloss over them. I, well, I lived in Wisconsin for a while, and when I was there, 95 through 98, the Wisconsin legislature passed a law saying that the Holocaust had to be taught in middle school to all the children in Wisconsin. And people thought this was open and liberal and everything. And I just said, what are you going to do about the indigenous people? You don't have to go halfway around the world. We got issues right here in Wisconsin. And so finally, they are teaching something about there were people here before the white man showed up. We don't know what happened to them, but they were here. You know, and so that, you know, that's why I did the church. And I considered it an altered book. And I did one for each church that was burnt. 
And uh, so I have this huge collection of these because nobody wants to buy them, you know. And so what I'm going to do is, yeah, there are one or two collections. <laughs> but what I'm going to do is that uh, I think next year I'm going to put them all in a pile and burn all of them. And uh, that would be the end of it. And it'd be like, hey, you know. And then I'll save all the ashes. And, you know, if anybody wants anything, I'll send them the ashes. Because of your, your craft and, and your, your passion about making stuff, about being political, and being in Detroit, how are you using your position, your craft, to have an influence on Detroit and the community that you reside in? Well, OK. Now, see, I take, the, I take the position that because I'm there, I'm in. And people can say that's arrogant and egotistical, but no, it's the truth. If you observe something, you change the people's behavior. So if you're there, you change the people's behavior. How do I specifically change the people's behavior? One is I do a lot of pro bono printing. I do a lot of things and just leave them around town. There are small businesses that are starting out. I do promotional business, uh, promotional printing for them just because I have a printing I allow people to come in and use my printing press to actually to get them hooked on printing. But if I can't do that, at least they walk away with something that they can pass out for a cause that they believe in. I donate a lot of things to, um, to charitable organizations for auctions. I do, I used to do, um, I used to do posters for the Flint Black Classical Music Festival. And I did that for two years. You may have a couple of them. But I have stopped doing that. And what I want to do is I want to find black classical organizations around the country and do one for each one of them. Because, mm -hmm. you know, as I tell people, I got a printing press. Mm -hmm. And I got, uh, you know, all my life is free. I have nothing really to do. And the only thing I like to do is print, so I just print. And people say, well, how do you make a living at I say, I don't know, it just happens. You know, I print and things happen. I, you, know, you know, like, I am skipping down life happy as, happy as you can be, you know, and things just happen right for me. And before I started printing, you know, everything was a, was a near disaster. But now I can just skip down, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, what are you going to do? I don't know, but you know, something's going to happen. And something happens. This past year, you know, I was awarded the USA Glasgow Fellow. Someone nominated me. I have no idea who did it. But, you know, this year, you know, they gave me $50,000 to skip down the road. And so I'm going to skip with that $50,000. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, and so this year is taken care of. And any money I make, I save it, and that helps take care of next year. You know, so, yeah. If you want to see Amos skipping, Laura... Zinger, Laura Zinger has yeah. done a wonderful film documentary about Amos Kennedy, and uh, that's available on YouTube. YouTube, yep. Uh, check it out. It's really delightful. It's an hour and a half. We're going to have to. Uh, I would you please join me in thanking Mr. Kennedy for his presence.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Creativity Conversations. This podcast was brought to you by Emory University and Arts at Emory. It was produced by Emma Yarbrough and me, Maggie Becker. For the full version of this conversation, you can find it on the Creativity Conversations YouTube playlist linked in the description of this episode. 